And it is recording, and it's picking up my vocals. Awesome. I'll pretend that doesn't exist, just like I always pretend the clock doesn't exist. <laughs> if you're new, that shouldn't be intimidating. All right. Well, it is October, and I am doing a series on monsters. And as you'll remember, the hook is that I'm not actually talking about monsters per se. I'm sneaking in core Christian beliefs under the guise of luring people to hear about monsters, which I thought was very clever. And I know it. It's working. It's working so far. Last week, we talked about zombies. And I had a big, long, hairy, extended metaphor about how zombies kind of visually picture what man is like without God. And it was, it was pretty graphic. There was story time involved. And... Uh, Yeah, it it brought the point home that people need God, and without God, we are dead. And that probably looks, in a spiritual perspective, a lot like Night of the Living Dead or some other disgusting zombie movie. Tonight, we're going to talk about a monster that doesn't get as much press as the other ones. We're going to talk about not vampires. Those get a lot of of air time. We're not talking about zombies anymore. We're going to talk about werewolves. Tonight's topic is the wolf man. And I kind of was surprised. As I started to do some research for this, I got some new respect for the Wolfman because it turns out this is a really, really old myth. In fact, the story of werewolves in particular, which is literally translated man-wolf, it's about 500-ish years old. Just like the witches were persecuted in the witch trials and Europe kind of went through this witch craze, right, where they're doing witch hunts and things like that. Lesser known, it turns out they also did werewolf hunts. And in fact, some of the witches were accused of being shapeshifters that turned into wolves. True story. And actually, before I got into some good sources on my university website, thank God, I was looking for werewolf history online. And (laughs) yeah, oh yeah, only the best sources. And there's so many people that are like, they're real, man, werewolves are real. There was a guy that admitted to being a werewolf in Europe and all this stuff. It's like, yeah, he admitted to that after like a day and a half of torture or something ridiculous. I don't think that was real. He was a serial killer, though. It's it's, kind of sick but true. So 500-ish years, the werewolf legend per se. It really got started, though, and there's all these kind of... I want to say, I don't know, an amalgamation of shape-shifting stories and shape-shifting myths of men turning into beasts for various reasons, for various periods of time, going way, way, way back. The first time the word werewolf was used was the 11th century, but we have a story of Zeus turning, I believe his name is King Lycoan, into a wolf in the Metamorphosis, which was written, I believe, by Ovid a long, long time ago. So we're talking about way back B.C., you know? Human nature seems captivated by this idea of a man turning into a beast or a beast somehow living in the heart of a man. And if you don't see where I'm going with this already, you soon will. When I got on my university website, which was my saving grace for this, I actually found out that some reputable people have wondered... Why has this captivated the human imagination for a millennia plus? The idea of men turning into monsters or a monster, a wolf, if you will, living in the heart of man. And I actually found someone, thank you, Miss Carolyn Podrukny of York University. Thank you, Carolyn. Excuse me. I'm having some 
Nasal emotional. issues. Yeah, I'm getting emotional. Miss <laughs> Carolyn from York University is writing in the Ethno History Journal, published by Duke. And she is curious, as no doubt we have all been curious, about the narratives of cannibal monsters in French-Canadian voyager oral tradition. Oh. Now, who hasn't gone to sleep at night wondering about this, right? <laughs> no doubt everybody... Well, let me clear it up for you. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it, it turns out that when the French started coming over and colonizing what is now Canada, they met up with the Indians there. And the Indians there were telling them these stories. And actually, some of the Indian tribes that we have right here in Michigan, like the Potawatomi tribe, I believe that's how you pronounce it, was one of the tribes they came in contact with that told them the story about the Wendigo. Has anybody heard this? It's the Indians' version of this cannibal monster. It has a couple different various tellings. And the French came, and they're like, we have something just like that, except we call it a werewolf. And you have this mixture of traditions. And Miss Carolyn says this, that in European literature, the, uh, the monstrous races, she kind of groups them all together, they play both foil and boogeyman by turns an immovable enemy and, more frightening still, you ready for this, an alter ego. An alter ego. And that is kind of what we're going to talk about today. Has anyone seen... Lon Chaney's The Wolfman from 1941. Did that scare the poop out of you the first time you saw him turn the werewolf anybody? I know it did my mom. My mom told me she couldn't even watch. She had to hide her eyes in the theater. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to talk about some of that. But first I want to pose this interesting idea. Another lady who wrote a book that I couldn't access and I was very upset, but her name is Charlotte Otten, suggests that the real werewolf legends as we know them today got started because of the Christianization of Europe. Something about the spread of Christian ideas actually heightened this werewolf uh, legend, these bestial legends. And she suggests that it could have something to do with the scriptures that have wolf imagery. There are a few. In Matthew 7.15, Jesus says, Watch out for the false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious Wolves, everybody knows it. Oh, it's biblical. It's biblical. Isn't that amazing? It's just like zombies. They're stealing all our stuff. Who do we sue for rights, man? How much did Twilight make a ton? Like, man, I'm telling you. Anyway, check this out. This is Paul writing in Acts 20, verses 28 and 29. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock. Again, sheep imagery, so what's probably coming? In which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Whole nother message. I know that after I leave, savage wolves. wolves will come in among you and not spare the flock. And there's even more imagery like this. Beware the dogs is said in another place. And in Galatians, in another chapter that I can't seem to get away from, Paul warns the Galatians, hey, live in love, because the alternative is this. Galatians 5.15. If you bite and devour each other, Watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. I'm going to suggest that Carolyn, I'm sorry, I think her name is Charlotte Otten. She's right. And if I read her whole book, which I couldn't get, maybe she would get around to the point I'm about to make. I like to think that. I hope so. Because I think that the werewolf legend, the beast inside the heart of a man, actually resonates with biblical truth, just like zombies. And we're going to talk about some of the reasons I think that's true, and it's a little more under the surface than these verses, but I think it's nevertheless poignant and clear. The enemy within. All right. 
Going back to my not Wikipedia source. Man, Wikipedia, I'm telling you what. There was a lady that wrote this article. She says that in European history, there were five constants in these beast legends, these werewolf legends of transformation. I want you to keep these five constants in mind of the werewolf legends while we read some of the verses from the Bible. You guys ready? Constant one is there was an altered consciousness in all of these werewolf stories. They detailed how they weren't themselves anymore. They became something else. All right? Number two, they were alienated from their, from their self and from society. They tended to withdraw. Number three, they suffered from acute stress and anxiety. Number four, they had a taste for bestial compulsions. And number five, they were focused on or obsessed with the demonic. Do I want to say this note on bestial compulsions now, or do I want to save that? I think I'm going to say it now, because I just brought it up. And it would be awkward if I didn't. When we think of the term, and it's a weird, gross one, bestiality, we think of people doing inappropriate sexual things with an animal. Because that's kind of what it's come to mean. But I had my mind blown under the insight of like the Renaissance man when I was reading the notes to Dante's Inferno. And the guy who translated it, it was like three quarters translator's notes and one quarter actual poem. And I found the notes actually almost as interesting as the poem. And Dante mentions bestial people and bestiality. And in the note, he's careful to point out to the reader, Anthony, who has no idea. I'm assuming these people are like, that's just sick. But he says, hey, back in the day, if somebody was bestial, that meant they were focused on the bestial parts of their nature. If they were a brute or if they were violent or if they were just all about, you know, food, sex, sleep, you know, they were living on the level of an animal. Right. And you could be considered a bestial man guilty of a form of bestiality by denying your higher nature. You're not living in the nobility of a man in the image of God. You're living like an animal. It's bestial. So in these stories, the werewolves, quote-unquote, lived on that bestial level. All right? Eat, drink, procreate, sleep. That's it. All right. Are you guys ready to move into a whole mess of Bible? You knew it was coming. All right, let's do it. I want you to keep those five constants, and I'll read them again in mind. We're going to read parts of Galatians 7. I'm sorry, Romans 7, Galatians 5, and Romans 13. Those are going to be our core scriptures. And if anybody does want a copy of the notes, I just printed out two copies. And see me after, if you are a true geek. All right, Romans 7, 15 to 25. This is Paul writing to the Romans, and people debate, well, is he talking about himself? Is he talking about someone else? What is Paul talking about here? I don't want to argue that now. He is describing the inner battle. And I believe, in he's, I believe he's describing the inner battle of someone that knows the Lord. All right? So we're going to read that. Romans seven fifteen to 25. I do not understand what I do. Does that resonate with any of those five points? Sure does. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Sounds like he's having an altered consciousness and he's separated from himself. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. It's talking about the law of God, doing things God's way. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it. It's no longer you who are doing these wrong things, Paul. That's weird. But it's sin that lives in me. For I know that the good itself 
I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is, in my sinful nature. Can I pause there for a minute? Paul is going to come back to this idea of a sinful nature, and he's going to call it a few different things. He's going to just flat out call it sinful nature, which is clear, concise, and easy to understand. And then he's going to do something really confusing that I don't know why Paul did it, but he does it. And he refers to the sinful nature as the flesh. It's kind of his metaphor for the sinful nature. He uses the actual word flesh in a few different ways. But in all the verses I'm going to read tonight, for flesh, you can hear sinful nature or you can just do an experiment with me. I promise it's not heresy if you don't change it in your Bible. Hear wolf or beast. Okay? Hear the beast. All right. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my beast nature, my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living inside me that does it. Sin, the beast living inside me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in the law. And God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind, wow, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, of the beast, at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Don't miss that with all the stuff I'm going to say tonight. So then I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful beast nature, a slave to the law of sin. Now, it is shocking to me how much that resonates with this person who is in no way writing about Christianity. This person is a true scholar who is delving deep into French-Canadian Voyager oral traditions and happens to notice these five constants of the werewolf theme. Did Paul seem to describe in that battle moment, an altered state of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Heck yeah, I don't understand what I'm doing. I, don't, I, want to, I do what I don't want to do. Why am I doing this? Did he seem alienated from himself? Yeah. It's no longer I who do it. This, this is getting a little weird, isn't it? Did he seem like he was under acute stress and anxiety? Yeah, yeah. the whole tone of the chapter is like, He's freaking out. There's not another chapter of Paul, I don't think, written like that in the entire New Testament. You know, it's scatterbrained. It's almost manic. Did he seem that he had a taste for bestial compulsions? That's not directly stated. But what's inferred is that he's doing something in the sinful nature that he hates. Right. So I think it's safe to say, yeah. yes. And if anybody's ever been tempted, I think that they understand what he's talking about. And now, an obsession or a focus on the demonic. For that, I will slide it's sin living in me into that category. He's like, he's throwing it right on that sin nature, man. We're going to talk about these in a little more detail. But I want to read yet another passage in the New Testament that fits with this. This is also Paul writing to the Galatians. Some people call the book of Galatians Romans light. It's kind of like you condensed Romans into five chapters, hit the high points with a little more aggression from Paul, and there you go. (laughs) So, that is so true. This is a little more veiled. It's not as clear. 
as the one we just read. But, but listen to this. See if this doesn't resonate with these beast myths, the beast living inside, the werewolf waiting to crawl out. Galatians 5, 13 to 21. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. And when we hear flesh, we are going to hear in this context the beast, the wolf. Do not use your freedom to indulge the wolf. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour each other, how interesting, that is proposed as the opposite of loving each other, by the way. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the wolf. For the wolf desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the the flesh. I'm just going to say flesh from now on. You guys know what I mean. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. Other translations say, so that you don't do what you want to do. Interesting. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not, will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is, Paul was very strong worded with the Galatians. Very strong worded. Uh, we are wise to look through that window and glean the lessons without going through the things the Galatians went through. Amen? Amen. Altered consciousness. I think that's there. I think that's there. They're in conflict with each other, so you don't do what you want to do. Flesh and the spirit, they're fighting back and forth. So if one wins out, the other loses. Yeah. Right? I think it fits. Alienation from self and from society. Yeah, if you give in to this, you're going to bite and devour each other. This brings up an interesting point. When we're talking about giving in to the fleshly nature or the beast or the wolf, what happens as a result in the werewolf movies when the guy turns into a werewolf? Is he invited to family functions and everything's hunky-dory and they invite him to be the member of the PTA and stuff like that? No. I remember watching Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein because my mom were always getting Abbott and Costello movies. Well, my cord reach, high five. That just happened. And Lon Chaney calls him on the phone, calls Abbott, it's a great scene, and he transforms into the werewolf while he's on the phone. I'm sorry, it's Abbott. Lon Chaney's talking to Abbott, and he's, he's already panicked. He's like, you're going to get too crazy, you can't open them until I get there. I can't leave right now. I don't have much time, you know, and he's freaking out. And you, you realize he's freaking out because he's about to turn into the wolf man, and he has a habit. He locks himself in his house. Yeah. Yep. And later, when he talks to Abbott Costello, he gives him orders that they, of course, break. He's like, you can't come in my room tonight. I have to lock the door. You, no matter what, don't let me out and don't come in here. You know, He goes through trouble to separate himself. In fact, in other werewolf movies that I won't name, after the guy transforms, he frequently wakes up covered in blood or naked somewhere, and he's completely ashamed. And he's got to run ashamed back to cover, and he can't wait to be by himself. Seclusion marks the werewolf stories. Sin destroys your community. That's right. Yep. Sin will kill your community. Not because it will make other people hate you. 
Everybody should look around in this room right now and see other people that will love them no matter what. Sin will destroy your community because you won't want to be a part of the community. You will want to pull back. That's what giving into the wolf does. Just like in the werewolf stories, it's the same in the church. A taste for bestial compulsions. The whole end of this chapter sounds like a wolf pack, doesn't it? They're biting and devouring and they've got anger and jealousy and rage. It's like a whole bunch of angry beasts fighting over a bone. And that is intentional imagery from Paul. Don't think it's not intentional. He knows what he's doing. He was intelligent. He wrote on purpose. He already did the bite and devour each other thing. He's hearkening back to that. Don't be beasts. Love each other. How about an acute stress and anxiety? I'd say that's implied. (laughs) Living with a wolf pack. You know? And the people that are trying to justify that, you know, look at the werewolf stories. Did those guys have acute stress and anxiety? Yes. And I'm thinking of, I want to say the movie so bad, but I regret that I even saw it. So forgive me that I'm not referencing it. But the guy was panicked and just wanted to kill himself, but didn't have the guts. But he lived with this knowledge that I go into this stage where I kill and mutilate people and destroy people, even people I love. And then I wake up, and even though I was out of my mind, I'm responsible. Mm -hmm. Incidentally... That's why we don't get drunk. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Anyway, so, and five, a focus or obsession on the demonic. That's not clear in this passage, but it is implied elsewhere. It works. It works. Maybe there's a reason. This has fascinated us for over a millennia, the beast inside a man, man turning into a beast. Let's read one more. And this is Paul again writing to the Romans in chapter 13, verses 9 through 14. And this one I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, so I have to read with my nose slightly up in the air. Sorry. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Romans 13, 9 through 14. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, and you shall not steal, and you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Again, Paul's about to contrast some things, and he starts with love. Where do we think he's going in this context? Probably going to talk about some sin nature stuff. Love love does not covet. I'm sorry. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the beast to gratify its desires. Make no provision for this flesh, this sin nature dwelling inside you. And I think at this point, I don't need to read all the way through all five categories. We see here that he's talking about bestial compulsions that aren't fit really for people made in God's image, but seriously not appropriate for Christians. He talks about how the night is gone. How about the night-day imagery, guys? When do people turn into werewolves at night? You know, the idea that night is the time when spooky things happen and bad things happen is probably as old as night time is, you know? Paul, again, is being intentional. 
We need to live like people that always have the lights on. Mm-hmm. All right? It's true. So we begin to see here that there is a lot to these werewolf myths. Like, maybe people are compelled to write about the beast inside people for a reason. Mm-hmm. It's true. It is true. And at this point, I want to make a statement. I want to say that I am in no way saying that someone who is a Christian, who has made Jesus their Lord and Savior, is not new. Right. You are new. You are new. Amanda, is she here? Amanda, just got baptized today. <laughs> so awesome. Sorry, I totally drew attention to you. Apologize. But it's like, yeah, that is like a celebration of newness. After we baptize somebody, I don't think they usually hear it because they have water in their ears, but we say raised in newness of life. So I made a point of saying that today, like, you're new. This is the big good news that, you know, most baptized people don't hear when they have water in their ears, you know? In Corinthians, Paul says the old things have passed away, meaning they're dead. The Bible talks about how Jesus has crucified, you know, your old man. He's crucified with Jesus. So then what the heck is this beast flesh stuff? I'm not prepared to give a whole talk on that. But I can show you. I can show you in you. Okay? I am a new creation in Christ. I love Jesus. I love people. And I, if I'm tempted, if something comes up and I start to hear a growl and howling in my spirit, okay, I know that's not me. And I can deny it. But that's what he's talking about. I don't want to take time to hash it out theologically and argue semantics about what exactly is going on there. But does everybody in this room just agree that that is real? Yeah. Right? And that is something... Issue. What's that? It's a real issue in life. It is a real issue in life. And we will be cured of it when we, let's say, transition out of this body and into a new and permanent one. But every one of us will have to deal with this beast. But that does not mean you are not new. And it doesn't mean you are not saved. I remember, Mom, when you told me when you were in your 30s doing physical labor in a warehouse and gave your life back to the Lord, you were talking to your one Christian friend at the Sears Distribution Center, and at one point, correct me if I'm wrong, you were like, but why is it so hard? Like, am I really saved? You know, I still feel tempted, and I still feel all this stuff. What was your friend's name? Dorothy. Dorothy. And Dorothy told you, Diane, that's just proof that you are saved, because if you weren't, the devil wouldn't be trying so hard to get you back. That's right? That's right. So the devil was set against you, The whole world's going to throw things at you. And there's this weird part of yourself, the beast, that wants to give in. How do we deal with that? Well, luckily, this is where reality diverges from the myth. If you watch Lon Chaney change in any of his Wolfman movies, or any of the older movies, besides before they tried to make werewolves and vampires like these romantic teeny bopper heroes. I don't know when that started to happen, but... Maybe you have to go back to the 80s, man. It's been a while, you know? Yeah, I think so. And you watch them change, and they are panicked, right? Lon Chaney's locking himself in his room. In other movies, they're like, they don't know what to do. And they start to change, and they're freaking out, and they're like, oh, my arm is changing. In 1941, they just showed his legs. I watched the scene. You know, it's like, oh, my legs are getting hairier. And then the legs stand up and walk out of the room, you know? But there's this whole, whole idea while it's happening that the guy's like, oh, no. I'm changing. I can't do anything about it. Point of diversion number one. 
you can do something about it. None of us in this room are destined to give in to the beast. I'm going to do a real pastoring thing. Can I do that? Yes. Everybody say, I, I don't have to sin. Don't have to sin. <laughs> like forever. Like you could be done with that. Today. Like it's probably possible. You know? You don't have to. That's what being transferred out of the domain of darkness means. That's what sin losing its power means. You really don't have to. That's right. Point of diversion from the movies, number one. And number two is this. If you want to kill a werewolf in the movies, first of all, the poor guy that transforms into the wolf, we call him a werewolf, right? Well, that's interesting. This is not your identity. Paul is very clear in Romans 7 that even though there's this battle, even though there's this part of him, Paul, that wants to do things that he doesn't want to do, it's contrary to the Spirit of God. Guys, he's given his life to honor and respect and suffer for the Spirit of God, and he's still dealing with this, but he draws a firm line. And he says, even if I sin, it's not me who's doing it, it's sin doing it. Now that is not dodging the bullet of responsibility. Because you are responsible for you no matter what. Paul is saying, that's not my identity anymore. He refuses to be identified with the wolf. He's a saint that is kicking a wolf's butt every day. But don't say he's the wolf, because he's not. And he goes over and over and over again to say that he's not. There's a line drawn. So in the movies, the guy that turns into the wolf is a werewolf. Paul's like, no, I'm a saint. I'm Paul. I fight wolves. Yeah. All right? You don't have to give in to the wolf. You, Yeah, he's a wolf slayer. You are not identified with the wolf. And the third one is, in order to kill the wolf, luckily, we don't have to kill you. There are some practical ways <laughs> that we can deal with this that don't end in some horrible movie ending that's, you know, tragic. Because most of them end tragically. <laughs> I'm going to go through these really quick. And these are all from Scripture, and most of these are from the chapters we just read. The first one is not, and that is this. These are all active, by the way. Can I just say that? None of these are passive or defensive. There's no locking yourself in your room here. Yeah, all right? There's no running here. This is all stuff we need to do and we can do. Number one, walk in the light. 1 John 1, 7 and Ephesians 5, 8, bring this out. Walk in the light and you won't do the deeds in darkness. Two, make no provision for the flesh. You don't have to give it any leeway. I was watching a trapping video. I'm a nerd. I like to learn on YouTube. And the guy is trapping for coyote and he accidentally traps a 20 plus pound raccoon. So he's got to let it go, right? So he has a catch pole that he's got to snare it with and then hold it at a safe distance until he gets it out. So that thing's going crazy. Raccoons are vicious, man. I don't know if, I've never heard noises like this. So he's got it in the catch pole and it's right here and he's trying to get its foot out of the foothold trap. Now, I'm telling you that if he makes provision for it and loosens that catch pole a little bit, he's going to lose a hand, all right? Or his life. Make no provision. That's up to us. Four, cast off works of darkness. You're doing stuff you know you shouldn't be doing? Don't be doing stuff you know you shouldn't be doing. Amen. Done. And number five, walk by the Spirit. The enemy of the wolf is the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God indwells every believer. It is more powerful. It's tougher. It's got sharper teeth. It wins every time. 
but it's our choice not to loosen the noose on the flesh, not to walk in the darkness, don't make provision for it, walk in the light, live according to the Spirit. That is my conclusion, but I have one afterthought, if I may. In the werewolf movies, how do people turn into werewolves? By getting bitten by a werewolf. Other people are affected and become a werewolf because somebody else gave in to the beast. Okay? At least four times in Scripture, this is also alluded to. In 1 Corinthians 5, 6 and Galatians 5, 9, both referring to different sins. In one, it's immorality, and in another, it's replacing the cross with legalism. Totally different. But to both, Paul says, a little leaven leavens the whole bunch. All right? And in three of the four Gospels, Jesus warns his disciples, avoid the leaven of the Pharisees. Luke specifies that that's hypocrisy, a sin. Do you know what leaven is? Yeast. It's yeast. You know what yeast is? It's a fungus. It's a fungus. He's saying that when one person starts giving in to the wolf, they become the ringworm of the Christian community. That's going to affect people. Okay? You're welcome for that. (laughs) (laughs) Boop, beast, poop. You got it. Yeah, thank you, Pastor Cameron. High five, you too. I got the illustration. I got it. So the beast and people, it's real. We can beat it. We don't have to give in. And we don't have to. All right. I'm going to pray. Father God, thank you so much for that word. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Lord, your truth stands. Whether creatively told or plainly told, your truth stands. And I thank you for that. Lord, we promise and we ask for grace to stand against the old nature this beast. Lord, we acknowledge that it doesn't have to win. We ask you for the grace to fight it. We ask you for the eyes to see it, the strength to overcome. And Lord God, we ask you for for really grace, grace and love for people that have their own struggles with their own beasts, Lord. I, I ask that judgment harshly of ourselves and harshly of others would not rule the day, just like I ask that snotty, holier than thou attitude would not rule the day. Lord, show us how to live and love each other better. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, next Friday, worship night. Right? Yes? Right. Right. Be back here, 6.30 on the dot, or 7, 6.30 on the dot. All right, love you guys. Feel free to mill around.